You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. All right, so we're, we're going to do a four-week series um, on, on Ecclesiastes, and some of this will be a, a bit of a redux for those of you who were in the class with me um, in the dean's class over the summer. Uh, so we did two weeks, and I'm going to try to... Um, um, to there, there will be some overlap, obviously, with what that course entailed, but I'm hoping to kind of press a little bit more deeply over these next uh, four weeks. Um, I do think Ecclesiastes is a timely book. I think we live in a particular moment. I mean, it's, it's very, I'm, I'm not great, frankly, at current, you know, cultural analysis. I, I need to kind of get some space to see things, as, as most of us do. But, um, but we are in, an, in, a, in a time, I think, that's marked by the fracture of the self um, and what it means to be a person, what it means to be in relation to other people, and what it means to come to terms with having purpose and meaning. Um, now, of course, that's, that's not a, you know it's not rocket scientist to make a claim claim like that because we you just look at the literature of the 20th century, especially going to the early part of the 20th century, all around sort of the World War One time, and and the, the, there's a, the questions about the meaning of existence. I think Franz Kafka or something like that has been around for a long time. Um, so this, but I, but I think now in our current moment, especially with the kind of suicide rate that we're seeing, which is becoming an unusual epidemic, and, and not just for people who we might describe as those having mental health um, struggles, but those who are just struggling with the futility of their existence as well, not to put those over against one another. I'm just saying, I think Ecclesiastes is kind of ready-made for us in this moment. So I'd, I'd like to wrestle with this book a little bit with you all. Um, and to do that, though, first, today, I'm going to try to set the stage for our next three weeks a bit together. And the first thing that I wanted to talk about, and, and by the way, you, this is going to be very in, informal, so you stop me anytime you want to chat about something, um, and, and we'll do it. Now, my, my students are on to me about this, by the way. They know I'll, I'll chase a rabbit, and that's not always healthy, but I know, they, I know that they know. Um, <laughs> but anyway... Um, I, I want to set the book of Ecclesiastes, first of all, for you in its canonical location. Now, that might immediately make you feel when I said that I'm going to talk about this, that you wish you'd have gone to another class. I don't blame you for that. Um, but I do think this is important to give you a set of interpretive um, expectations, a set of questions that might help you read the book of Ecclesiastes, knowing where it's located in the Old Testament. All right, so I've got a piece of chalk here, and I'm going to... Don't worry, Stokes, I can get around you. Um, so, <clears throat> when you have the, uh, the Old Testament, those of you that have in class, you know this before, I'm going to break it up into these, into these three parts. That's an A. Into what, what's called the Tanakh, all right? Um, and the Tanakh is a kind of mnemonic device for the Torah, which is the law, five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Now, if you're, if you're going through the um, uh, book uh, aisles at Barnes & Noble and come to the Judaica section and you find a Jewish publication society Bible, this is how the Hebrew Bible is ordered. Um, our English Bibles are ordered in a structure that's rather different. Um, that's, an, that's a fascinating conversation in its own right. 
Um, I, I do really like the Hebrew ordering for multiple reasons, but I don't necessarily think it's... Um, I'm, I'm willing to be flexible on it, but I, I prefer this. Um, so you have the, 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 the words of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then you have the prophets here, which is... Um, the N stands for the Hebrew word Nevi'im, which means prophets in Hebrew. Uh, what kind of books are in the Nevi'im? Often surprising to people, actually. But books like um, Joshua, Judges, Kings, Samuel, and then, of course, the ones that we know, Isaiah through the Minor Prophets. I'll call that the Twelve. And so Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then Hosea all the way to Malachi. So these are the prophets. And the prophets and the law are in reciprocal conversation the one with the other. We need both of them. Um, Deuteronomy comes to an end. Uh, Moses has, has a relationship with God that's friend to friend, face to face. That, that speaks of the singularity of Moses' legal and prophetic ministry. He is unique within the Old Testament economy. And then you have someone like Joshua out of Joshua 1.1. How does Joshua identify himself as a servant of Moses? So already you see that the prophets have a kind of self-conscious understanding that their identity is in service to Moses in depositing and bringing forth the Mosaic Word to new generations through their prophetic ministry. So the prophets help us understand the law, and the law helps us understand the prophets. And if you've read your New Testament, which I know you know you all have, um, you'll realize that the language law and prophets can often be shorthand in the New Testament for the whole of the Bible. So that these two right here form what we might call a fundamental grammar for how we talk about and understand the Old Testament. The law and the prophets. That's, that's the foundational grammar um, of the Old Testament. Okay, I think something similar, by the way, in the New Testament could be said about the Gospels and Paul, but that's another conversation. Okay, um, Then you come to this third group of writings, <coughs> which is the Ketuvim which this just means writings. Okay, now I don't want to get uh, too lost in this, but why is this important? Well, the Ketuvim includes books like Psalms, which tends to be, more often than not, the first book of the writings. Um, and if you've ever read Psalms 1 and 2, the first Psalm... This is, this is, I just find this fascinating. The first psalm is about placing life under Torah. So if you really want to have a blessed, what does it mean to be happy? What does it mean to flourish as a human being? What does it mean to enter into the fullness of your human identity under the smiling provision of God Himself? It's this. <clears throat> Someone who submits themselves day and night with joy and delight, intellectually and with their affection, to God's instruction. What God has to say is what I want to give my life to. Um, I just sat with my kids this past week and noticed that on Amazon Prime, Fiddler on the Roof is streaming for free. I forced them twice already. They, they swear the whole time. But to sit down, and you're going to watch a few songs with your old man. And the, one, the first one that I made them watch was Tradition, because that's so good. Um, and then... Uh, that humorous, so funny song where he's, you know, in his barn and he says, you know, if of all the divine comedies that have gone on in this world, just Raptavia speaking, you could have made me a little rich. 
you know, and he says, he said, I realize that, that, that the being rich is not a virtue, but it can't hurt, you know, so then he goes with this whole thing, and uh, <coughs> I had a friend of mine who once said, I know that money can't make you happy, but I would like to existentially experience that for myself. Like, I'd, like, I'd like to be able to affirm that this, this really doesn't make you happy. Um, <coughs> so what does Rap Tavi do? He sings this song, If I Were a Rich Man, and talks about his wife having a proper double chin and stairs, ways that go up and down. And so it's, a, it's super, super fun. But there's one point where he gets forlorn um, and has this sense of deep longing. He sits down. And, and I, I, every time I see him, I tell my wife, I said, that man who played Raptavia, I don't even know his name, um, has the perfect face. I mean, he's, a, he's like a Cezanne painting come to life. Um, and he says, uh, and the greatest thing of all, if I were a rich man, I, was, I would have all the free time I need to sit in the synagogue all day long and just talk about the Torah with the elders of the city. I mean, that's the, and that's what he really, really would want to do. And I think that's kind of, that's what Psalm 1's getting after, after the law. Um, and then you go to Psalm 2, <clears throat> which talks about placing life under the kingship of God and His anointed. Ending Psalm 2 with what you might think of as a red thread that goes through the whole of the Psalms that can almost be seen as the means by which the soldiers held together. This is the last line of Psalm 2. How blessed are those who take refuge in Him. So if you look at Psalm 1, verse 1, how blessed are those who do not stand, walk, sit with the ungodly, but instead they delight in the law of the Lord. How blessed. And then Psalm 2 ends as well with how blessed are those who take refuge in Him. So you have these kind of bookends right there around Psalm 1 and 2 to let you know that even though these are two psalms, they're meant to be kind of viewed within a singular frame of what life looks like again in light of what? Well, this is... I've I, I, not seen anybody ride on this, so I could really be wrong here. And I wouldn't go... I'd change my mind if I had to go to the guillotine. But I'm almost convinced that Psalm 1 and 2, right here out of the gate of these writings, are referring us back, number one, to the Torah. And Psalm number two, to the, if, a, if not the major theme of the prophetic literature, and that is, what does it mean to live life in God's kingdom? What does it mean to live under his authority and his rule? In light of the righteous king. Because you'll know that what gets the prophets um, wired up, amped up, very significantly, is an unfaithful approach to being the king of God's people. I mean, they will talk about it. Just read Jeremiah. He's cranky about it from beginning to end, and rightly so. So here you, what's, you say, Jinla, this is a, a lot of ranting here. What's the point? The point is the Ketuvim, these writings, and you see it right out of the gate with Psalm 1 and 2, are letting you know what life looks like on the ground in light of the reality of the authority of the law and the prophets. What does it look like to, if, if these are true, if this is the fundamental grammar of the Old Testament, then what does it look like to live life in light of that claim? And you can't get out of Psalm 1 and 2 without there being a kind of tipping and tucking within the Old Testament's own dynamic and conversation about the law and, uh, and the prophets in the kingdom. Now, with that said, again, I, I think, I don't want to reduce the writings to this, but I think that's a nice way of understanding their total package, and that is, they're helping us know what life looks like in light of the law and the prophets. We find within them, the writings as well, have I lost you? 
Um, I'll tell my students when I can tell I'm losing them. I'm like, I, don't, I hope you're not going to your happy place. Let this be your happy place. <laughs> <laughs> um, so within the writings, you have uh, a collection of shorter writings that all fit happily on one scroll. Okay, and uh, and it's called the Megalote, or the little scroll. And here are the books that are in the Megalote. All right, and they tend they, there's a lot of movement with these, but they tend to come in this order. One, you have Ruth, which, by the way, again with the ordering that most of us are used to, Ruth comes right after Proverbs. Okay. Now, by the way, Ruth can move. It can migrate in the Bible, and that's okay. So I don't want this to be too hard and fast. But the reading here, the association between Ruth and Proverbs is, how does Proverbs end? With, you know, Bible studies that at least for a lot of women have been kind of abusive. But, um, you know, the, the virtuous woman stuff. Um, but, but, but the word for virtue that's used in Proverbs 31 is a word that's predicated on Ruth in Ruth chapter 1 and 2 as well. Um, so what is the virtuous woman? Well, the Bible's giving you an example of that it's Ruth, okay? Um, and then you come from Ruth into Song of Solomon, um, which might, again, in this associative reading strategy, again, I don't, I'm not pressing this too hard, but in this associative reading strategy might say something about the pleasures of marital union that one sees in light of the relationship between Ruth and Boaz, right? Now, I tell people, Ruth 3, you know, when she goes out into the... I wasn't planning to talk about this today. But when she goes out into the vineyard in the middle of the night and, and uncovers um, his feet, I don't think it turns into an HBO mini-drama, but it makes you feel uncomfortable, right? Um so, uh, so you have Ruth, you have Song of Solomon, and then right after Song of Solomon is our book, Ecclesiastes, letting you know the significant limitations of pleasure, of wisdom, and toil in this life. So there's a kind of relationship here about what the limitations are of what you've just experienced and read about even in the Song of Solomon. And then you come to uh, the fourth book, which is Lamentations, which one might see might see as an expansion of the individual plight that you find, the inner existential plight that you find in a book like Ecclesiastes that's now expanded out to the nation as a whole. So what you find coming from the lips of Kohelet in Ecclesiastes are now found on the lips of the nation as a whole in their suffering together in solidarity. And then when you move to the fifth book, which is one that's quite contested in the history of interpretation, it's the book of Esther. And I think this is a very, you know, Esther was debated um, whether or not Esther should be conceived of as canonical for a long time in the Jewish tradition. I mean, it's the only book of the Old Testament that doesn't have who in it. No yeah, no God, no Adonai in this. I mean, that's a little bit of a challenge for religious literature until you begin to recognize that Esther... Um, that God's presence, here's the million dollar word of the day, God's presence is metalyptically present from beginning to end. By the fact that he's not mentioned, he's even more manifestly present in his providence. 
I mean, we're all adults in here, so I'll give you an example of that. If I look at my son, and I have to say, I, I do say these things sometimes. I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm growing in, in grace. But if I say, son, I'm, if you keep doing that, I'm going to beat the out of you. Now, I don't, I don't really say that, but I have said other bad things. Um, <laughs> but if I, the fact that I don't fill in the blank, right, actually can make the absent word even what? Yeah, stronger. But that's metalipsis. So I think the absence of God's... That's a horrible analogy for Esther. <laughs> but I think the absence of God's presence... I mean, the absence of God's name in the book of Esther actually makes him more profoundly pronounced. And that's, what, that's, that's a nice interpretive lens for the book of Esther in relationship to the other books in the scroll of the Megalote. Because now Esther is conceived of as eschatological. It's future hope oriented. Can you see the movement from um, Ruth, the virtuous woman, to the enjoyment of that kind of pleasure of a husband and a wife, and to Ecclesiastes that sees the limitations of that from an individual perspective, to a book like Lamentations that takes it from an individual to a corporate national reality, to the book of Esther that's letting you know that but God's not done with you. He's holding on to you, even in your suffering, even in your confusion, even in your hurt, whether it's individual or national or corporate, God is not done. He will preserve His people. He will take care of His people by the craziest of providential schemes. Um, to use the language of John Calvin, uh, Jesus is not sitting idly in heaven. He is active and involved in what? in ordering providentially his creaturely affairs. He's doing that, and Esther's a great sort of example of that, okay? So I, again, I, I hope you're kind of getting some of the texture of this. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to force any of these books um, into this mold so that they can't say, speak in any other ways. I think the beautiful thing about biblical literature is that it's, it's, it's remarkably generative. Um, and I don't mean by that um, a kind of overly reader response approach that you can kind of come to these books and make them whatever you want to be. But I'm just saying that their given literary form has all kinds of ability in association with other books in the Bible to become like flowers that continue to blossom. That, that's what, to me, makes the Bible so fun, is that inner conversation that's illumined by the power of the Holy Spirit that creates all kinds of different avenues of interpretation that don't have to be... Um, self-defeating one over the other. One of my favorite... Or, oh, I wasn't planning on talking about this, but one of my favorite lines in the Articles of Religion, I was just talking about with my students about this week, is in the section on the doctrine of the church where it says that no preacher or teacher of God's Word can teach one section of Scripture so that it be found repugnant to another. I encourage my students, you're in, in this class here, I want to teach you a non-repugnant reading strategy. Right. Now, that recognizes that for all of the diversity of this literature, and I love it, you know, the Bible doesn't come to us like a sort of nightly, nicely packaged systematic theology. You want to know what God thinks about the person of Jesus? Read page 397 to 405, and you can figure it out. The Bible doesn't come to us that way. It comes to us in all kinds of forms and genre um, and, and modes of expression that can create all kinds of internal tensions too. That's the beauty of the dynamic of the biblical witness. Okay. Here's another thing that I think I found uh, just thinking about Ecclesiastes again as we get into this is how earthy the Bible can be. Um, think, think about, the, and it's one of the reasons I love the Old Testament, and I say especially the Old Testament. Here you have the Law and the Prophets. 
dealing with the most profound realities of God's being and God's way and will in the world. And we're from, from creation uh, to sin to evil to, the, to promise and hope. I mean, all these massive human and theological themes that are, that are working themselves out in the, in the law and the prophets. And here we come to a whole section of the Old Testament, the Ketuvim, that forces you to think about these things in light of ordinary life. There is no escapism that the Bible allows. It doesn't allow you to detach yourself from the warp and woof of real life and the difficulties that come along with real life. The Bible, if I can put it in, in religious terms, the Bible's just, it's not Buddhist. It's not. You don't get to ever more in your spiritual growth and, and, and um, maturity get to detach yourselves from the problems of material and relational existence. What the Bible does is it gives you a set of instincts and hopes and really, I think hope is a big word, and wisdom to enter into fully, to lean into those material and relational dynamics. And so the Bible's not going to let you go on holiday from the relationships that cause you grief, right? The Bible's going to give you a set of instincts and hopes to move into those relationships, and the writings are just a great example of that, and that's why I think Ecclesiastes is so good. I've been in the screw tape letters again, and I've joked with people before um, that I'm, you know, I'm not a very good evangelical because I have mixed feelings about C.S. Lewis. You know, I, I know, and I'm, that can be um, not well received in some places. What? I know. I'm not proud of that. Um, and I don't, and I think I'm wrong on this because it's, it's more. I just never got into the, the Narnia stuff. Is that horrible? Um, but my but my wife reads it to our kids, so you know they'll they're, they'll be okay. You know, said something that agrees perfectly what you just said before you started this. When he said God loves matter. Yes. And that's and that's the part of Lewis I like because we're gonna I'm gonna read him again just on that issue right there. The part of Lewis that I I I, I, li- I really like are his reflections on. I mean I've I've got the weight of glory is is my you know close reading right now. So I think these these reflections on, on life and material existence and pleasure, which is how we're going to end today. But I wanted to read you this little bit from the screw tape letters. Um, so you know what the screw tape letters are. How, how many of you just out of curiosity worked your way through some of these? By the way, a very easy book to start and not finish. I will say that about the screw tape letters. A very easy book. Um, it, it loses a little bit along the way, but uh, don't tell Lewis I said that. Um, but you know, the screw tape letters are a, a demon, uh, Uncle Demon writing to his protege, who's his nephew Demon. So it's Uncle Screw Tape writing to his ne- nephew Wormwood, and he's and he's actually kind of um, he's rough, he's difficult, he's he's scolding him all the time, um, and and uh, Wormwood has a patient. And the patient is a new convert to the faith. And it's Wormwood's task to pester and tempt this new patient away from the realities of the grace that he has just found in Jesus Christ. And so the wise and sagacious, if those are the terms we can use, Uncle Screwtape, is giving young Wormwood advice on how best to achieve that. And this is what he says getting out of the gate. I thought this was really good. And by the way, whenever you hear a screw tape say the enemy, he means our Lord Jesus. 
So he says, remember, Wormwood, he's not like you, a pure spirit, never having been a human. Um, You don't realize how enslaved they are to the pressure of the ordinary. I once had a patient, a sound atheist, who used to read in the British Museum. He's being snarky here, I like it. One day, as he sat reading, I saw a train of thought in his mind beginning to go the wrong way. And the enemy, of course, was at his elbow in a moment. And before I knew where I was, I saw my 20 years' work beginning to totter. If I had lost my head and begun to attempt a defense by argument, I should have been undone. No argument would have won in that moment. But I wasn't so foolish as to engage him intellectually. I struck instantly at the part of the man which I had best under my control and suggested that it was just about time he had some lunch. The enemy presumably made the counter-suggestion that this was more important than lunch. At least I think that must have been his line for when I said quite, in fact much too important to tackle at the end of a morning, the patient brightened up considerably. And by the time I had added much better come back after lunch and go into it with a fresh mind that he was already halfway to the door. And once he was in the street, the battle was won. I showed him a newsboy shouting the midday paper and a number 73 bus going past. And before he reached the bottom of the steps, I'd got him into an unalterable conviction that whatever odd ideas come into a man's head when he was shut up alone with his books, a healthy dose of real life was enough to show him that all sorts of things just couldn't be true. He knew he had a narrow escape and in later years was fond of talking about I love this. That inarticulate sense for actuality, which is our ultimate safeguard against the aberrations of mere logic. And listen, this is very harrowing here. He is now safe in our Father's house. Um, now, I read that in a way to kind of lean, just lean a little bit against it. Because I think what Ecclesiastes is saying, and I get what Lewis is doing, so I'm, I'm playing with him here. I mean, what Lewis is saying is we can get distracted. We, we do this to inoculate ourselves in so many different ways. I have to have internal conversations with myself regular, regularly about all of our tendency to inoculate ourselves from really having to think and reflect on who we are and where we are. And we, we do it. We, we, we want some kind of narcotic. Um, and I'm not talking about like bona, but some, think of that metaphorically. Just, to, just so that we don't have to think about what it means to be. And a book like Ecclesiastes is just not going to let you do that. It, it's, and, and that's why, this, I, I, just to warn you, getting into a book like this forces you to lean in a direction um, that frankly I don't think comes naturally to us. And when it does come naturally to us, when we're lost in these moments that can lead toward existential angst, at least, I don't want to impose this on you, but at least me, in the way I'm hardwired in my personality, I want to inoculate it as quickly as I can. What is the Yankee score right now? Um, what's going on with this or that? And I don't want to, I, I'm going to nuance all that because I don't want to get us into these false dichotomies between pleasure and enjoyment of God. We're going to talk about that a lot during this class. But the point is, Lewis, Lewis is saying something here that's certainly true. Real life can distract us from real life. I think that's what his point is. But at the same time, I think a book like Ecclesiastes is forcing us to think about real life in light of real life. Um, and that's why I think this book has a certain kind of enduring quality to it that I, I frankly am kind of stunned 
um, that you'll have a perspective like this that's coming straight out of God's inspired word. If you're, if you're looking for holy and happy in a sense of separate and sanguine, um, then, then Ecclesiastes is going to become a little bit of a challenge. So can I read to you? Well, I, that was like my introduction. Let me get to it. Um, let me just read to you the first few verses, and then we'll come back next week. My plan was to do Ecclesiastes 3 next week, but we won't do that. Um, the word of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Let me just go in and plant the seed, and we'll talk more about that Hebrew word hevel next week. Um, but the word hevel, is a, it's a metaphor. And it's um, lighting up a, a cigarette and blowing smoke, or a cigar, or whatever tobacco you deny yourself. Um, it's, it's the fleeting character of smoke. And because it's a metaphor, it probably has multiple means of letting us gain some access to the reality that the book of Ecclesiastes is wanting you to think through. And so I don't, I'm not convinced I need a master theory or a master term um, for the metaphor throughout the whole book. But if I was forced into a corner and someone said, you need to choose one um, understanding of what he's getting after with Hevel. Um, and I thought about this since I've even, uh, even from my first lesson this summer to now, I've had some augmentation on this. Of course, we, uh, most of the readings in the King James tradition is vanity of vanities, a futility. Um, things never lead to ultimate success. Um, that, that's, got a, that's got a long reception in the history of especially the English-speaking world. But going back to even Jerome in the 4th century, Jerome took that reading about futility. He entered the term vanitas into the translation of Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2. And, um, and it led to a kind of contempt for the world perspective of the book of Ecclesiastes. Right? Um, my, my sense is, and there's more, we'll talk more about this next week, but I, I'll plant this seed. I think the, the, the meaning of the metaphor is closer to the, to the actual metaphor itself in this sense. Like smoke, because remember, he talks, he talks about vanity in light of striving after the wind. Like smoke and wind are ungraspable. They're fleeting. They can never become something that you can possess. What you put all your effort into, whether it's wealth or pleasure or wisdom, it's never something at the end of the day that you can hold on and make it your own for good. It's, it's hevel. It's smoke. It's fleeting. And that's the, that's the question here. If that's true, then what's the real meaning of life? If all the things that we put our energies into are things at the end of the day that we can't hold on to and ever make ours as a matter of long-term and eternal permanence. So where do we find hope in the middle of all of that? That's the question that Ecclesiastes is posing and hoping to answer. So Lord, bless us as we enter into this, this series together. And thank you for a book like Ecclesiastes that um, can really kind of crawl into our skin uh, to force us to stop and be reflective, um, which is not something that's easy to do. Uh, so Lord, I pray that you'll give us the grace to do so in light of our security and hope that we have in our position in you, Jesus. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.
You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.